Judy was boring. Hello. Then Judy discovered Chumbacasino.com. It's my little escape. Now Judy's the life of the party. Oh, baby, mama's bringing home the bacon. Whoa, take it easy, Judy. The Chumba life is for everybody. So go to ChumbaCasino.com and play over 100 casino-style games. Join today and play for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. Voidware prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. You are listening to the Next Best Picture podcast and Visa Will Mavity's interviews with the re-recording sound mixer on Rocketman, Mike Presswood-Smith, the supervising sound editor, Danny Sheehan, the sound designer, Matt Collinge, the production designer, Marcus Rowland, and editor, Chris Dickens. I could hear the whole tune in my head. It was all there, I could see all the notes, and I just had to get it out. It's a little bit funny, this feeling inside. What did you say your name was again? My name is... Reggie! Reginald Dwight. Reginald. Hi there, you're listening to an episode of the Next Best Picture podcast. I'm your host, Will Mavity, and with me I have the production designer of Rocket Man, Marcus Rowland. Marcus, how you doing, man? I'm good, thank you. Nice to have to speak to you. So I noticed on your resume you have a history of production designing, primarily kind of fantastical films. Yeah, so, so tell me a little bit about transitioning to a somewhat more realistic and grounded film, albeit not entirely with Rocket Man. I, I, you know, I mean, I, I never, to be honest, I never really consider Rocket Man a realistic or grounded film. You know, I, 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 think, <laughs> it, I think it is a fantasy in a way or an expression of Elton's mental state at that particular point in time. So we're, we, you know, we're not tethered to reality completely. Yeah, it's grounded in a in a in a basis of uh, the real world. But I mean, to be honest, a lot of the films I've done are also have their you know I mean firmly one foot in that that world. We never go completely into complete fantasy. Well, you know, one of the fantastical elements I thought was pretty interesting in this one was sometimes the film would have these long takes, like the Saturday Night mm-hmm. All Right sequence, where you know, you, you transition from one period in time to another. You have a huge age jump, and it appears to have all been done in one take. Tell me a little bit about designing very crazy, almost scene change sets like that. Yeah, I mean, obviously, the design process is in in tandem with the, 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 the director of photography, which was George Richmond, in terms of that we discuss how we can do this. I, You know, and obviously design the sets with that in mind, but we come up with an, a technical approach that would allow those sort of transitions. And, uh, you know, I mean, we do quite a bit of rehearsal before to make sure it's all a bit seamless. But, in, I mean, obviously the easiest one to explain what was going on is the Saturday, Saturday night's all right for fighting, because, you know, I mean, that, there are transitions in there, but they're fairly seamless, and the, and the transitions are there partly because you can't literally put all bits of stuff <laughs> Of course. So, I mean, we start off in the pub, which is a, an interior built on stage. Then we go through the doors. The chair comes through the window. As, we, as you go through the doors, that's sort of where the transition and the blend goes because we build the same doors on the exterior. So you, you, it gives you the latitude to either line them up or, or take one element from the other. So, and, then, and obviously the chair going through the window just sort of, sort of distracts your eye as well. And, and the, in terms of the, the exterior of the pub and the alleyway, 
and the fairground. I mean, I, I, I deliberately try to squeeze that all in the same place, which it is, which is a bit of a number because it actually takes up quite a bit of space. Um, oh, sure. So, so that is a fair, you know, I mean, fairly in camera. There's little bits of uh, trickery going on where they condense some of the dance numbers and obviously getting a camera through a fence and swinging past involves some digital help and there's a couple of little digital pieces as well. But I mean, as much as possible, we try and work that out, obviously in advance, do some rehearsals and, uh, you know, and it's a discussion point between all departments really how we achieve that. So because this film had to be so choreographed and blocked out in advance, were most of the sets built especially for the film? Yeah, I mean, I, I think it, it, certainly the bits that had big dance numbers, the, the reality of trying to do that on locations was, you know, I mean, became pretty apparent to us straight away was almost going to be impossible. I mean, it, it, we never, you know, I mean, we, when we started this, we never dismissed location work, but I, it didn't take long before we realized that to get the, the yeah, the control that we needed, it was all, it, it was something that we wanted to fight for and try and build spaces. Because, you know, I mean, like the alleyway, there's no doubt that certain places exist like that you could uh, dress. But by the time you've had it for three or four nights or a week or three, it's it's sort of a, you know, it, it really would become very limiting in terms of stylistically and what practically you could do. You're obviously filming at night, you know, and people don't particularly like having their <laughs> nights disturbed by people dancing and singing. Uh and so it's sort of driven partly by uh, necessity and, and also by by the freedom it allows you by to be more creative. But it, you know, I mean, it's a process because we, you know, we, we do look for locations, and then at the same time, we're, they're also beginning to get a sense of what that choreography would be, the scale and the size of the proportions of of the area that you would need to perform in, and uh, so that starts to dictate, and and you know. Finding somewhere is very difficult, and but you know, and in the end, we made the right decisions and built quite a lot. I mean, because throughout Rockman, there isn't actually, you know, I mean, it, a lot of it is builds. I mean, certainly all the yeah. interiors, barring sort of the Royal Albert Hall, and and quite a few of the exteriors, because you know, I mean, we're in London, we're not in LA, so finding any sort of uh, exterior that we might have been able to turn into the Troubadour or or we might have, uh, or you know, in the street, or and, you know, there just there there isn't the you know, I mean, there isn't the places out there, and and the, the Laurel Canyon House, the sort of kind of cast type influenced uh, cabin in the in, in the woods, really, was you know, I mean, we did look for locations, but it was it was just difficult because we you know, I mean, it's a very you know, Europe is a very different type of architectural style so you know you just couldn't find anything certainly any anywhere in and around london which we were you know it'd be like in the u.s that really once you decide to set up a unit base you're very limited because of the nature of the production that you're moving from various different you can't go too far out of the center of town because you lose so much travel time so we're trying to we're in a limited area to find stuff so yeah, I mean, it, 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 by the process, in the process, we realise we definitely have to build it, and and once we've made that decision, it's pretty straightforward, really. What do you think would blow people's minds most to learn that you created for the film? I, I think I'm, I'm hoping 
I, I, I'm hoping that, I think most people are surprised that we didn't travel to the U.S. to do more of it. No, I was. <laughs> and, and, you know, and I, I and, uh, you know, and I'm, I like the fact, I mean, I like the fact that, uh, you know, in the exterior of the Troubadour, you know, we did research it, we did have reference, but it was across different periods, so we selected the more interesting version of it. And literally, we built it outside the carpentry warehouse in a car. <laughs> Uh, a very unglamorous setting, but and we were just we positioned it at the right axis to the sun at the right time of day. So we obviously scheduled that to be exactly uh, at a certain time in day when when the sun would be in the right path to be actually hitting it directly and giving it a. And we were lucky at the time the sun came out. It's not always uh, very predictable in the UK. And, and so that, that. that really helps just set the scene really because it's. You know, it is quite a hard thing to do. You know, I mean, especially being in LA at the moment, you realise how strikingly different the light is. Just the colour tones, the the angle of the light is very, very different. So you mentioned you'd done some research in general on actual historical sets. Mm -hmm. Did you, in general, like with Elton's house and other areas like that, did you try? to rigidly recreate history or did you just kind of decide this is almost fantastical this is a version we can create something that's our own i mean you know i mean obviously you have you, you we started with historical facts with images and things that represented the real places and i actually did go to elton's house and i was shown around which is very generous of him and and so i i got a sense of the the place and the proportions of that house and uh, and then we took that on board, and then we just ran with it. Really, we didn't. We, I didn't. We didn't allow. You know, and obviously we wanted to pay some kind of homage to the real place. It has a a character that we sort of partly used, but we were we did want to embellish it. I mean, the house actually that is in the film is considerably larger than Elton's house. I mean, it is, you know. It's a very nice house, but it's you know, I mean, it's not as big as you would imagine. It's a, it's a, you know, I mean, you know, I suppose for for a sort of superstar, it's a fairly uh, uh, modest house. He has a huge and fantastic art gallery around the back, but you know, and the house itself is not of the grandeur that uh, the one in the film is. But it's got a similar architectural style. We used we used the real things to inspire us to take it a stage further. Now, when you were kind of filling up these locations, um, talk to me a little bit about the props and set decoration you used in general. Did you use anything from the real world, anything of Elton's or anything like that? No, but we try to put sort of cues that refer to things in his life into the background of various scenes. And, and I'd, I'd, we'd also, because of the reference that I... Because of visiting Elton's house, became much more aware of his character and his love for collecting items. It sort of reflected. You don't always see it that clearly in in the film, but we used we used bits. Certainly in in his UK mansion, there's elements of his backstory. There's Watford football. Uh, there's a when he. he with the owner of Watford Football Club, there's there's reference to that. So there's, there's references to periods in his life, and also we did have there's a fantastic uh, 
book that, I, that when he he auctioned off a chunk of his sort of uh, 80s uh, possessions to charity. So there's a book with reference to what was actually in his house, and we use that as a guide as well. That gave us a cue to the particular type of style that he was into. Is there any particular kind of Easter egg that you stuck in the background that you, you wish people had noticed that you're particularly proud of? Yeah, I think I think I'm 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 I was you know I mean, slightly hope that when Elton watched it for him that he took on board that we'd observed the way he laid things out and dressed his rooms like the 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 nature of the precision of his collecting you know he's got snuff boxes and various different and everything is meticulously laid out so we tried to emulate that a bit and also perfume bottles and his sort of world we try to reflect that. I think there's, you know, in, in, in Reggie's room, somebody mentioned to me, which I'd forgotten about the other day on a Q&A, was that uh, there's a little rocket in the background of the dressing of his bedroom. It's that sort of thing, which we do as we go along. I, you know, they're, they're thought out, and then we put them in, and I forget about them, to be honest, until I see them myself. Well, we're getting towards the end, but I had two more questions. First, what do you think was the hardest challenge you faced on the film? I don't, you know, I, I don't, I think there is no one particular set that was any more problematic than any other. I think the hardest challenge is obviously just trying to get a good stylistic look across the film. And, and then, you know, and then that's, that's harder than it sounds. You have to sort of build that imagery and try and tell a story visually is the challenge and, and heighten the energy as you go for, further forward. So, you know, initially, obviously, in the 50s, which would be an obvious route, it's a bit more duller and a bit, bit less exciting. And he's in, he's a, a sort of out of an alien in that world. And as he expands, it becomes much more about him and his his personality. So it's trying to reflect his personality in in the settings that we we build and uh, and emphasise what's going on within the script at that particular point. And last question, um, what are you working on next? Are you going with Dexter to work on Sherlock Holmes? Well, I mean, I was initially, the, not at the moment, no. And, and it's not and it, it's not that I would not want to do that. It just came, the last time, that, when that was first starting up, I was finishing a film with Edgar Wright, which obviously I've worked with on many, Of course. Yeah. And that was last night in Soho. So it sort of was clashing and making it very difficult for me to, to camp over to L.A. And, and you know, I would never leave a project behind. So that, that sort of dictates it. And I'm doing some work on uh, the possibility of a Little Shop of Horrors, which is very exciting to me. Oh, that's great. Yeah. So that's, that's, that could be on. Yeah, yeah it's, it's just, it, you never know until they green light the film what you're doing, to be honest. It's so, of course, it's, 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 that's the way it is. But I mean, ideally, you have a few projects in the air. But I mean, it, 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 I would I'd be very excited to do Little Shop of Horrors if it, if it comes into fruition. And they're, they're obviously casting at the moment. I was, was obsessed cool. with that musical, so I, I can't wait to see any kind yeah, of cinematic yeah. adaptation. Yeah, and it's also a challenge because obviously it's such a familiar. It's, it's obviously difficult taking on something that's so familiar and and influential, really, and, and, and sort of has its own own charm. So it's trying to hang on to some of that and expand on it and bring a new new feel to it, certainly look-wise and, you know, performance-wise.
Well, Marcus, thank you for your time, and I hope we see you throughout the awards season, maybe at the ADGs or even the Oscars. So appreciate you talking. You did a fantastic job. Thank you very much. Absolutely. Have a great day. Okay. Bye. Okay, round two. Name something that's not boring. A laundry? Ooh, a book club. Computer solitaire, huh? Ah, oh, sorry. We were looking for Chumba Casino. That's right. Chumbacasino.com has over 100 casino-style games. Join today and play for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. Chumbacasino.com. No purchase necessary. Forward, prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Greetings from Evergreen Podcasts. We're rolling out a listener survey, and we want to hear from you. The information in the survey will help us gather statistics and in turn make our shows more appealing to advertisers. I know most people don't like ads, but this is one of the only ways our shows make money and help keep their lights on. We promise it will only take a few minutes, but the impact on our podcasts will be tremendous. As a token of our appreciation, we'll randomly select one lucky participant each month to win an exclusive merchandise package from Evergreen Podcasts. Head to evergreenpodcast.com slash listener survey to help a show and possibly get some free stuff for doing so. We can't thank you enough for the support. Now back to the show. Start as a fat boy from nowhere. Get to be a soul man. Gotta kill the person you were born to be in order to become the person you want to be. I'm thinking of changing my name to Elton. But that's my name. Yeah, I know. You can be the best-selling artist in America if you desire. I was trying to do something bold. Buy yourself something flashy. Can you even play the piano in those? Let them know who you are. And just don't kill yourself with drugs. All right, so I got like a whole round table going on here. Perfect. Yeah, yeah, we're here for, uh, there's a cost screening, you know, uh, guild screening tonight. Uh, and we're here for that and some, some of these interviews, yeah. That's fantastic, guys. Well, thanks for taking the time to talk. Great, thank you for having me. You know, this is a pretty wild and versatile film we have here. The thing I was most curious about in general is, tell me a little bit about the challenges of doing a movie like this that's a biopic that's also basically a fantasy, because you've got water sequences, you've got, like, space sequences. I mean, that's got to sonically just be just an insane undertaking to do. Um, yeah, hi, this is Mike here. Um, yeah, I think a lot of people call, you know, they talk, talk about it being a musical, but I think it's fundamentally at its core, it's a fantasy film, really. And, uh, and, it's, and it's really uh, tied together through the music of Elton John and his stories getting told through the lyrics of his uh, songs, and they're all being used. It's not, it's not like a normal musical, it's a sort of chronological needle drop kind of thing, and this is very much told from the lens, his own lens. And so uh, it required a lot, a lot of uh, work to get that feeling right, uh, not just from sound, but I think everybody. It's, um, you know, uh, editing and, and, and Karen's work and all that sort of stuff. It took a lot to, to sort of make that fantasy uh, to feel real and make it feel like it's a place where an audience could happily journey along without ever getting bumped out. So another thing, other than the fact that it had a lot of fantasy sequences, which you have, was that you had a lot of long takes. Uh, talk to me a little bit about the process of making those work. 
Yeah, well, Saturday Night Raw right sequence, for example. Yeah, yeah. I mean, that was shot as a single take. Obviously, I think there's a few little cheats in there, but ultimately that was the conception. And it's actually one of the early tracks that we uh, got into to find out really how this was going to work. Because fundamentally, it's a performance from Taron, uh, but also Dexter Fletcher, our director, was very keen to make sure that the performance never felt like it was just a kind of pop video kind of thing, like a needle drop. It was all, it, it was important that the performance was very visceral and real and grounded uh, and connected to the screen and just performance on the screen. And, and because it was a fantasy, there's a lot of the vocal went in and out of dialogue and, and then back into singing again. So it was important to find a layer of reality throughout these things that made it all work and made it all connect. So our task on that, on that one was to really give the song the room it needed to, to read as a, as a piece of, as a, as a sort of, uh, as a set piece, as a, as a big number. But at the same time, put enough connected uh, sound in there to really sell, uh, give the performance a grounding so it felt real, but also give his environment a complete uh, um, uh, grounding too, so that the whole fantasy became real. I, I've said this before, but I think really a fantasy is only as good as it is believable. And we, our, our task was to really sort of ground that fantasy and make it sort of something that we could all understand. Well, so as part of the fantasy, uh, this one kind of goes out to Danny, because you're the supervising sound editor on this, aren't you? That's right. Me and Matt are both posted. Oh, you, okay. You, you both work on that. So tell me about some of the foley you guys did. Anything that's kind of an unorthodox method to get some of these sound effects in here? Um, the, but yeah, so for the foley, I guess there was um, certainly for some of the musical numbers where we were trying to get the sound uh, of the scene syncing with the music. So it's kind of heightening certain movements and, and picking out certain movements that, that fitted well rhythmically with the music. So for like the Saturday nights, all right, the, in the fairground scene, picking out the, the, clothes, the cloth wishes of the movement and the, the foot stomps, and just trying to make that really part, part of the music. So you were still keeping in touch with reality, but it wasn't distracting away from the music. So it was trying to treat those things like that, and then probably Honky Cat as well, uh, a similar type of thing where the, the design is, is thinking rhythmically with music, but you're still trying to kind of add to the heightened sense of the, the the sort of fancy element of that and, and what, what that whole number is trying to do. Um, so, that, yeah, that, that was kind of, kind of with Foley and sound design that, that, that we were trying to do with those musical numbers and the same with Bitches Back as well. Now, what about in uh, the Rocket Man sequence where you straight up take them underwater? Uh, tell me a little bit about kind of getting a song that's going to be naturally distorted by something like that. Yeah, we were just talking about it was a moment where we decided to go much more sort of musical than real. Uh, I think it sort of lends itself to that because, it, you know, ultimately, it's, you know, him singing underwater is never something you're going to be able to make literal. And like you said, we just try bubbles. We, we try bubbles. Work, yeah. <laughs> um, so we let the music really do a lot of the lifting at that point. And uh, obviously because it's kind of quiet and beautifully orchestrated, it gave us an opportunity to really fill the sound space with... Uh, a lot of the arrangement that Charles Martin, our music arranger, had done, and really open up the score into a, a big moment uh, underwater there, and let that drive it, with a view to then slowly building it back to reality when we got into the Shea Stadium, where Danny here um, spent a lot of time getting all of our crowd and uh, getting all that to feel real again. So, so that we had, you know, one of the things we really wanted to try and do is make it as dynamic as possible, the whole film uh, shifting, uh, and, and, and interesting. So that's a great example of that, going from the sort of quiet 
musical-driven space is underwater to this this very real sort of moment on stage when he takes off. Um, it was a it was a lot of fun to do. Yeah. So, what do you think? Something that general audiences would assume was either recorded in camera or relatively easy to accomplish <laughs> that you guys kind of stealthily got in there that you're particularly proud of. Something people wouldn't notice. Yeah, you know, the the, the, the scene, uh, what's the track this thing together? Um, I want love. I want love. Yeah, yeah when they're, I mean, it's a quiet, it's one of the first little numbers when they're just all singing quietly in the in the front room uh, with with this very lush score. You know, all of that is, I mean, most of the sound, most of the, Vocals in this are all pre-recorded; they're not live. So, get it, but getting something like that to feel completely genuine—it's often the quiet stuff that's actually quite difficult to do. And uh, getting a performance, a vocal performance, to feel like it's actually coming out of someone's mouth that it's not being, you know, lip-synced is—it's, uh, you know, it's very detailed and, and, and you know, work to do. And uh, for me personally, that's one of the ones I look at and go, I totally buy all of this performance. I never, I never for a minute feel. Any of this is being post-sunk or, or lip-synced or anything. It's, and I think our task was to to try and ground all of Taron's vocals, uh, as long as uh, as well as everyone else's, in in a sense, so that you never really questioned whether it was, whether it was live, whether it wasn't. Uh, you know, I think the minute you start thinking about that, then um, you're you're suddenly breaking the spell. I think Dexter was very keen to make sure that the performance always felt genuine and integrated and, uh, and that it was actually coming. He never wanted the moment when it was just, where you just kind of hit the audience with a kind of um, music video thing, you know. It was always meant to be uh, basically grounded in reality and, and, and adhere to the performance. I think your song was similar to that too in the sense of when Taron is talk, uh, singing at the piano. It's kind of a moment there where we transition from him actually singing live on the piano in, mm-hmm. into kind of pre-recorded tracks like the Charles Martin had done. Um, and like those kind of things, trying to make those as seamless as possible. So, as, as Mike saying, as an audience member, they're not bumping at all on any of that stuff. There's a clever, clever sort of techniques of getting across, and then all of a sudden you're kind of in another place, and the song's being sung, like in a studio. But it's kind of making those things work. That felt really good to me. How that stuff come come about? Yeah, your song's a good good one. Yes. Yeah. So, what was the pro? Uh, I guess we don't have the production sound mixer on here, do we? But um, what was no. the process like in general of what was recorded on set? Was basically this whole film kind of between ADR and obviously music tracks? Was this pretty much all you guys' piece that you created in post? Basically, what happened was we had early conversations um, before we started the film. Uh, John Hayes, the sound recorder, and uh, Andy. Um, and in fact, the music editor, we um, we kind of collaborate, collaborated early to talk about how they were going to shoot the film. There was kind of conversations about Taron when he wasn't singing live, that he kind of visually made it seem like he was really singing, like he was kind of making his face quite animated. So we tried to get all of that production recorded, so be he was live or not live, and he was singing to playback. Everything was recorded. Everything was then used later in post for like kind of lip syncing and then when we got into sort of the pre and post records we had a conversation with Charles Martin the music producer um, to kind of ask him to record things in a way like we would a film because the musical world everything is recorded quite close proximity microphone and quite highly produced whereas in this film we're coming from sound that is you know it's been worked on cleaned up so it's slightly slightly less in the sense of quality sound quality so we kind of set, 
set a workflow that we were coming from on set production, and we got Charles to record with a radio mic and a boom mic um, with, with sort of more air sort of length around the, the recording, so it did sound more like production, so that we had all those options available for mic in the mix. So when we were working those things in and out of production, pre-records, post-records, everyone was kind of on board really early with that to help that. You know, it was a big thing that we needed to get right. And like all departments were across that to make sure that that worked. Now, was Dexter pretty involved in post? Is he a pretty hands-on director in mixing and editing? Yeah, yeah. He, I mean, it was a very tight schedule on this. So we, uh, he was very busy uh, during the final. We had quite a short time to do it. So he was in and out uh, doing grading and visual effects and things. But, yeah, he was all across it. He, he was very keen to make sure that we found the uh, aesthetic of the film early on so that we could then take that through, um, you know, all the numbers that were going on in there. So some of the earlier numbers, like Pictures Back and Saturday Night, we we really did spend quite a bit of time getting those right with, with a view to then having a template to go forward. And when I say getting them right, what I mean is, the choice of how much reality to put in in order to glue the performance without usurping the music in any way. Yeah. So, and that really is quite an objective thing. And it, uh, But he was very keen to keep, as I said before, keen to keep the sort of visceral nature of his performance and reality of it. So he was always keen to find that layer of reality. So he was around for that, for those things. But then once we'd established a bit of a language on it, he would then let us get on and... Uh, sort of get it standing on its feet, each, each number, and then uh, come and review and find tweet with us. But um, there's a lot of heavy lifting that you have to do on something like this before you can really present it in a way that makes sense. So we, having established that sort of his taste, if you like, we could then take that forward um, and get rid of anything we didn't need. But it was, um, each number had its own little particular need for reality. Some numbers didn't need as much, some did. Um, you know, they were all they were all very different. And I think, you know, musicals should they should all be different to keep them interesting. Yeah. So the one thing I always love to ask guys who work in sound teams is there's usually an Easter egg you guys buried in there that's just for you. I know the Shape of Water guys buried the sound of Michael Shannon having sex in the background of almost every scene. Um any any fun little uh jokes or Easter eggs that you guys stuck in the film you can talk about? Come on, come I've got a little scream in um, Saturday Night to Right to Fight Him when it kicks off. I'm trying to compete with a Wilhelm scream. Yeah. I'm, I'm a million, <laughs> oh, a million scream? of screams off at the moment. Danny puts it in every movie he works on, and, and I can show you, pinpoint exactly where it is. That's my little <laughs> nugget. I'm going to have to re-listen to that. Will I be able to pick it out? Yeah. It's as, he, it's as he runs across, they're fighting in the fairground just before he exits the fairground. You, you'll hear one particularly loud scream, and that, that's it. <laughs> Is it the full, like, <sighs> It's the yeah, Wilhelm. It's kind of Wilhelm, and it, I've oh, heard it I many that. times. Yeah. I think it made it on the Super Bowl once as well, when the Kingsman filmed it. What about you other two? You guys stick anything in there? Oh, um, when... when um, when uh, Elton and Bernie go to the truth for the first time, this was actually Dexter's idea, so. Um, but uh, Doug Weston is uh, the club the promoter's flirting with uh, Bernie, and uh, he had his put a trousers in as he walks over to him, unzipping his trousers to suggest that he was a bit more forward than the dialogue was suggesting. So, but that's pretty subtle, but that's in there. If you listen to it, that's all. Yeah, listen out for it. It's quite funny. <laughs> <laughs> 
All right, guys. Well, uh, we're about to wrap up, but I have to ask you all, what are you guys going to work on next? Is anyone doing Sherlock with Dexter or any other exciting projects? I'm not sure about Sherlock yet. We're, we're currently working, me and Matt are currently working on Kings and Matthew Vaughan's uh, new movie. Yeah, and I'm, I'm doing a Disney thing called The One and Only Island for a director called Thea Sherrock. Oh, yeah, I've heard of that. That's fantastic. Well, thanks, guys. Anything else you would like voters to know before you go? Uh, I don't think so. We'll let, the, we'll let the film speak for itself. I think it's, it's just nice to be able to chat and, you know, let, let them know what we've done. Absolutely. Thanks so much, guys. Thanks okay, very much. Cheers. Thanks. Thank you. So how does it feel to be a star? It's never going to last. Let's just enjoy it while we can. Most sleeping arrangements get out. All of this is gone. I just hope you realise you're choosing a life of being alone forever. Don't you want to just sing without this ridiculous paraphernalia? People don't pay to see Reg Dwight. They pay to see Elton John. Sorry. I know. Everybody, I have Oscar-winning editor Chris Dickens to talk about his work on the Elton John film Rocket Man. Chris, how are you? I'm fine, thank you. So. Obviously, this is uh when I think of a Chris Dickens edited film, I typically think of something that's got like Edgar Wrightish or I guess Danny Boyle esque whip crack editing. Uh, while Rocket Man is a very dynamic film, it's in some ways more deliberate in its cutting. It seems like. Tell me a little bit about editing a film like this. You like to let the shots breathe more as opposed to a Danny Boyle or an Edgar Wright stuff. Yeah, that's a very good question. So um. Um, I mean, basically, I don't. I wouldn't really myself approach it in such a different way, except because you're going, you're really just working with the material that you've been that the director has shot, and the rhythm of what he or she has shot is, you know, gives you your cue as to how how to deal with it. But um, but what I will say is that you know, when I worked with Edgar, he's he's his approach at that time anyway was really about the cutting and the speed of the cutting and that was really the point of the things that we worked on. In actual fact, it was kind of like a joke within them that they got so fast, they got right. crazy. And um, and, it's, and it's a similar thing with Danny, although not quite the same. And I think the energy with which they were shot and that had a lot to do with the cameraman that, you know, shot well and he was a very good operator and moved very quickly and the subject was very quick and again that was just his approach on that particular film and um, on Rocket Man, of course yes you're right it is a much more deliberate approach and a lot more was planned in terms of transitions and and this kind of thing and, and one of the reasons for that is that it's the musical and I think the musical numbers had you know we had to record the musical numbers and plan how we were going to go from one to another and and sort of plan the transitions to a certain extent so that we had to sort of map the film out a little bit more. And so the, the, the approach was very different for me in that that doesn't mean there wasn't any editing to do, but it, it just meant that I had a sort of more advanced sort of starting point to, you know, a point from which to start from. And, and so I was working with much more with a, a concept, essentially, that the, the film was, you know, a higher concept, I suppose, for want of a better, or a different kind of concept, for want of a better word, which was a fantasy musical about a real, you know, someone's real life, sort of a biopic combined with a musical. So 
the approach is there, and therefore you have again you're serving that story, and you're trying to combine the elements of the musical and of a sort of straight drama all in one one sort of go, and that was what. You know, I approached it just like I would any other story. I said, okay, yeah. this is a musical sequence. Can we play it in one shot? It's designed in one shot, maybe two. Do we need to cut it down and make it more cutty or more faster in some way? And um, and so, yeah, it, it, I hope that answers your question. It's, it's, yeah, yeah. It's dictated by the material. I was going to ask, were you involved with Dexter beforehand in planning any of this? So that you could um, know. Yes, I mean, no, no, I was there during the shoot and just before the shooting of the film. And, and yes, because I, when I signed up to do the film, I read the script and he talked about what was different about this film to a lot of others and certainly a lot of other musicals is that the, the way that the music was being used. And um, we were using Elton's music to illustrate his life. Um, and, um, and therefore, the the imagery and all of the things that he was going to shoot came from the song. And um, and so when I first read it, I said, look, I love that. Um, I wouldn't want it to be totally literal, that treatment, i.e. what, you, what is sung, you see. But that was partly the, the idea, is that it's a very simple idea, but for me, I was on board with that right at the beginning, and that's what, that's what I wanted to you know, I really, really was excited about making. You talked about that. Obviously, you got what they shot. They planned out a lot of the transitions. Was there anything you hated to see leave on the cutting room floor in this? Any other musical numbers or big <laughs> sequences? Yeah, well, there was quite a lot on the cutting room floor. I mean, the thing, nothing that I really hated to. I mean, the, the, the main challenge of the film um, was this, and, and, and this is what, primary thing we wrestled with was the fact that it was a musical and had these kind of quite extended musical sequences and a, and a sort of kitchen sink drama at the same time, which charted Elton's life from a boy through to, you know, a young man. And and also we had um, a number of things in rehab where effectively it was like flashbacks to parts of his life. And the real difficult thing was unifying these these three elements, particularly the musical element and the drama element. And um, and what happened is the first sort of cuts of the film, we stayed too long in the dramatic area without any music and without the kind of fantastical sort of things. And so we really had to start cutting down those sections and, and making them feel stylistically very, you know, the same as the musical um, parts. So we used a lot of score score with themes from Elton's music and with themes from other parts of uh, the film in them to try and get the sense that you were seamlessly interweaving the two elements, you know, the dramatic and the musical. And what we've also found is that sometimes the musical parts were, were too long yeah. for that reason, in that you were settled in with them for too long. And so we had to make some cuts to the film. We had to cut a few... I mean, nothing that really was painful, but Honky Cat, which is a song in the you know early earlier part of the film, is is um, I was a little upset about. We had to cut down to half because we had two uh, two parts of it. We had the first part where we chart their rise to making more money and buying Rolls Royces and paintings and things like this, and then 
the second half of it where they're just enjoying it all and they came through a door and were dancing around on a record like a sort of 1930s sort of you know Fred yeah and we cut it completely because and I think you can find it on the DVD extras but we had to cut that out completely because it it um it tonally wasn't quite right and um and you know, but it was great in itself. It really worked in itself, and uh, but it didn't advance the story. So that's what we had to it, it hit the cutting floor. Um, almost every musical number. I mean, we had Saturday nights all right for fighting. We cut down by a lot of a, you know, a third. We had to take a section out of it, and I suppose it hurts a little bit because I know that it was good, but we had to sort of we had to shorten it a little bit just to get the balance right. How many cuts um, do you have in that sequence? And the Saturday Night Song, right one. Sequence? The Saturday Night Song. Oh, well, there's only three. There's only three or four. But there's a new one because we cut it down. There's a cut in there that is a sort of more visible cut. I think there's one, two, three, four. There are four in there. But it was always planned. And, of course, as an editor, you know, an editing job, it on the surface job, it seemed very difficult. But actually... Then we had to concentrate on what the music was doing and the sound effects and all of that stuff. But because the way that that works is it, that sequence evolved musically through it. The styles of music changed to reflect the change in time, you know, that he's growing up. So um, yeah. Yeah, about four or five, five shots in there. You know, I was just talking to the uh, the sound guys, and they said that they had recorded their own version of the Wilhelm scream to pick in there to, to drop in there as well. I think it's pretty hilarious. Oh, yes. Yeah. Another team I was curious about your collaboration with was the VFX department. Yes. What What would I not notice? What would your average audience not notice in the film that you guys put together digitally? Were there crowd sequences, et cetera, et cetera, that were just completely CGI? Oh, yeah. I mean, on the face of it, it wasn't a visual effects kind of film, but actually, when you think about it, you have to recreate, I mean, those concerts. Um, you know, things geared around that. We, we shot them all in a studio, a green screen, with not a single crowd member so wild. in there. I mean, apart from that, there was one where, one where um, Elton said Queen Elizabeth I, and that's like, we, we had a few crowd members in there, maybe 40 or 50, but that had to be created. But the, the main one was Rocket Man, and, and where, you know, obviously he's underwater, and... Um, that area, actually, interestingly, the Taran side of it, his part of that was not a visual effect. That was actually really? underwater. He was in the pool? Singing. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So that's what you might be surprised about. Little boy shot dry, basically. Um, sorry about that. He shot dry, so in a, in a studio, not underwater, just with a with a costume on and the blue background. Wait, that's so cool. Um, and, um, yeah, and so, but Taran, Taran was... Um, Underwater and then very short takes and then the divers would come and I mean it's just beautiful. He he shot a lot. He was there for a long time doing that. But it, but it, that that is you know something very surprising. And um, yeah, I mean apart from that we had to create LA and the Troubadour, which not so much visual effects, but we, we never came we never obviously came to the Troubadour. That was completely rebuilt from the outside, the outside and the inside. That is such an astonishing sequence. Everyone I've talked to who's seen the film just goes on about that moment. One thing I was curious about, when you talked about stuff you had to cut, 
Was there ever a question of trying to force the film into a PG-13 film? And uh, did you and Dexter have to fight to keep it authentic? And yeah. Far? Yeah. I mean, I suppose I have to be a little careful. Right? Yeah, of course. Of course. But there, there okay. was. You know, I mean, basically, the film, as it was originally written, was probably even a little more of an art than it is the one that's been released. Yeah. And I think what we were, we did have a, a time where we were trying to do that. To sort of basically discover whether it was possible or not, I did. I did a, a little number of versions of it to get it to that place. But what happened is, is that it lost any. In fact, you can remove like sex and drugs and things like that, and kind of imply that it's happening rather than show it. But what we had problems with the language, and in, in removing that, we removed. We were removing some of the funniest parts of the film, like oh yeah, you know. You know, basically, Elm's first manager, you know, swearing the whole time and all that. And it's like, we couldn't have that. If you took that out, you'd lose a real heart. And and also, you would have lost you would have lost something key about Elton. Um, and, uh, you know, the fact that he is quite a sweary person. And he's got a <laughs> reputation for being a little bit like that, I think. And so, therefore, you know, that would have been a slightly dishonest and... I mean, there was one scene, there were a couple of things. We did shorten the thing in the club, you know, the, the nightclub, Benny and the Jets was more explicit, really, um, than than what, and, you know, we used mixes and things like that to sort of, um, but not so much to censor it, more just to, to make it feel more about his experience rather than, you know, what he's seeing, um, you know, rather than it being R-rated, just just for its own sake. Right. Um, but yeah, it, it didn't work. And, and I, you know, I think, I think we got the right balance. I mean, you know, but, but certainly as a PG-13, it wouldn't have worked as a film. I thought you guys found a spectacular balance on that. So I know we're getting close to time here, but what are you working on next, man? Uh, yeah, I've been doing a, um, or I'm doing now a TV series, which is a new thing for me, or I haven't done for a while, but with Steve McQueen, the, um, oh. the director of 12 Years a Slave and Widows and, and um, Hunger, who's obviously a, does something quite different, but it's a TV series which is a little bit unconventional, all different stories, and but one of them is musically orientated, and um, and um, so I'm working on that, and that, that's going to be, I think, Amazon and BBC in England. But it'll be another year, and it doesn't actually have a title at the moment. It's a working <laughs> title, so, so it's interesting. And he he's a very cool person, so you know, very interesting director to work with. Oh and, man, um, I'm excited. yeah. So I'm doing that for a bit of TV. Uh, yeah. Any other features in the book? Not at the moment, because Rocket Man we was literally finished in May this year, just before it's released. So after this, this will be the next thing, and then the after. This will be done in June next year. So after that, maybe maybe another feature. But I'm not sure what yet. So if there's one thing that you could hope that voters learn about your work on the film, as if you were saying, I'm really proud of this, or this is really hard, and I did it, about Rocket Man, what would you say? Um, I think I would just say that, yeah, I mean, what was hard, and I think what I'm most proud of that we achieved was the combination of all the elements that we had in the way that we work with the music and of course it's 
completely new, not the songs, but we re-recorded all the music and re-recorded the vocals and the whole process, the editorial process, is not just myself and Dexter working on the picture, it, it was a sort of collaboration with the sound and music all at the same time. And I think, uh, for me, I felt that I really managed to bring something to that, to bring that into being. As, and for an editor, that's the, one of the most challenging things often, is, is to kind of unify all those elements. And it may not be completely apparent when you watch the film, but that was the most difficult thing about it, was, was keeping on top of the changes as it was happening and sort of keeping your eyes on the film as a whole. But that would be that would be the mind if one of the I think it worked out. Everyone I've talked to loves it. So thank you for taking the time to chat with me, Chris. And I well, thank you. Uh, hopefully yeah. seeing you in the Oscar race later this year. Yeah, okay. Well good. That would be fantastic. <laughs> great. All right. You take care. Hey everyone, thank you so much for listening to Will Mavity's interviews for the film Rocket Man here on the Next Best Picture podcast. You can subscribe to us on iTunes, SoundCloud, Google Play, Stitcher, TuneIn Player, FM, Acast, CastBox, and also on Spotify. Be sure to leave us a review on Apple Podcasts and let us know what you think of the show. We really appreciate your feedback and your support, which you can lend on over at Patreon. For $1 minimum a month, you will get some exclusive podcast content from us. Thank you so much for listening, as always, and we I'll see you all next time. Okay, round two. Name something that's not boring. A laundry? Ooh, a book club. Computer solitaire, huh? Ah, oh, sorry, we were looking for Chumba Casino. That's right, ChumbaCasino.com has over 100 casino style games. Join today and play for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. ChumbaCasino.com. No purchases, over prohibited by law, 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details.